Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I think there might be a very small number of people in the room who, who were alive at the time, but some of you might have seen it since. This is uh, a wristband from Make Poverty History, which was a big old campaign in 2005. It coincided with Britain having the kind of chairmanship of the G8. And the idea was to raise awareness of global justice issues, debt relief, uh, different um, poverty issues around the world and in our own nation. So they did big music concerts. They had uh, loads of people bought these wristbands. It was like the trendy thing in the summer of 05. Uh, They also had loads of TV specials, like the Vicar of Dibley did a special episode uh, about Make Poverty History, raising awareness. And it's not the first campaign of its sort. It's not the last campaign of its sort. But for me, it was probably the most significant one. So uh, I had just graduated not long before this time. And up until this point, most of my attention had been on me, my family, my, my group of friends around me. And I'd paid very little attention to what was going on in the rest of the world. I didn't know about the injustices. I didn't know about the unfair trade practices that existed. And the Make Poverty History campaign was something that opened my eyes and let me see something through a different light. Now, about this time, I'd been a Christian two, three years, something like that. I'd joined a church, and I'd joined one of the serving teams. There was, uh, I I guess, a serving Sunday there as well. I put my name down for one. Good thing to do. Uh, And I joined the youth team. So there was a youth group that we had. Uh, There was a guy who ran it, and then there was a few of us volunteering to help out. And each week, we had a a Sunday meeting after their evening service, and there was a Bible study for for this group of young people. And there was a schedule, so I, I, I looked, and I was down to lead it one time. I hadn't done loads of Bible teaching at this point, but they'd given me a passage in the Bible to do a little study with this group on. And when I read the passage, I found this speaks into so many of the things that have been highlighted by this national campaign, Make Poverty History. And it it helped me see that what, what these people were highlighting going on in the world wasn't divorced from my Christianity but that God had views on it. God had something to say about these issues. And I got really excited diving into the passage. I went to the guy who led the youth groups. Dave, we've got to do more than this. It can't just be one study on one Sunday. We need to take the young people on a journey into these issues. So um, that summer, we put a whole program together. We called it Activate, but had a number eight at the end of it, because back in 05, that was how you got down with the kids. And um, we, we had all these different things that were helping the young people engage in these issues. And what I want to do this evening is I want to bring you that same Bible passage that spoke to me back in 2005 with this youth group. It's in the book of James. So if you have a Bible or an app or something like that, you want to follow along. James chapter 5 is where we're going. Before I read it to you, let me just kind of give you a little heads up. It's pretty intense. It's one of those Bible passages that doesn't pull any punches. So just be ready for it. I'm going to read the first six verses of James chapter 5. So here we go. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. 
Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted. And their rust will be evidence against you. And it will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. There we go. That's what James has to say. I want us to to think about these verses and reflect on what they may be saying to us today. And the first thing I think we need to be aware of when we read a passage like this is when James is speaking to rich people, he probably has in mind people like us. So um, if you think about the planet Earth, the average, the median average salary that a person earns is £2,270 per year. So anyone who earns more than that is in the richest half of the global population. Anyone who earns less than that is in the poorest half of the global population. Around 10% of people on Earth live on the equivalent of £2 per day or less. If your salary, if your income is 10 grand a year or more, you're in the top 15% of richest people on earth. If you're earning 20 grand a year or more, you're in the top 5%. And I suspect there's some in here who go above that into smaller and smaller percentages still. And I know it's a bit more complicated because the cost of living does vary from country to country and you can nuance it a bit. Yeah, I think when we hear a passage addressing the rich, we need to realise it's probably got in mind people who are affluent in the way we are affluent. If you think by the standards of history, we live in an age with unprecedented buying power. Most of us would live like kings and queens of past generations could only dream of, with the level of luxury, the level of uh, things available to us. So we need to hear these words as words spoken to people like us. At the same time, though, none of us chose that. None of us got to decide what moment in history we'd be born into. None of us got to decide what circumstances we would get brought up in. So it's not like we're getting told off for something that's outside our control. That's not the spirit of it at all. Actually, what the Bible has to say about wealth and riches is pretty nuanced. There are, there are passages where there are warnings that, that do make clear there are dangers associated with having a bit of money. So Jesus in Luke 6, Sermon on the Plain, says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Or another time he was speaking to a rich young man, and he said to him, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. He then went on to say, but with God, nothing is impossible. He's not saying it's impossible to follow God as a wealthy person. He is saying it's difficult because that money, it's like a rival to God for your heart. You'll be, you'll be tempted to go after the money and put your security in the money and find pleasure in your money rather than God. It's something that might lure you away. On the other hand, though, you've got those warnings. You also, in the Bible, have examples of people who did follow God faithfully 
and had money. So in the Old Testament, Abraham is a great example of this. It says in Genesis 13, Abraham was very rich in livestock and in silver and gold. And he's one of those characters who's held up as as an example, as a paradigm of what it is to truly have faith. Or in the New Testament, we've got Phoebe. So in Romans 16, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. She's been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. So uh, here's a lady, Phoebe, who uh, apparently had a decent amount of money, and she was basically bankrolling the whole missionary enterprise of Paul and other people. They were people who were well off and yet commended as faithfully following God. So there are warnings, but there are examples of people doing it well. So here's what I want to do today. This is the question I want to ask from that James passage. How can we faithfully live for Jesus as globally rich people? How can we be disciples? And what I want us to do is get a bit of a vision for our money, a bit of a vision for what we can do with our finance, a vision for using our cash as a force for good, not just a force for self. Because I think the people James is talking to, they had their money, but their sole kind of preoccupying thing for it was, how can I get what I want for it? And they didn't have a vision for it as a force for good in the world. How can we get a vision for our money as a force for good? And I think there are three things I want to highlight. So the first one will be how we make our money. The second one will be how we save money. And the third one will be how we spend money. So let's talk about how we make money because there was some stuff going on there that wasn't fair. Now, let me just tell you a different story before we get on to what was going on in their day. This is when I was in about year eight. So I was in history class, and I had a teacher, uh, Mr. Haycock, his name was, and he set this contest for for different people in the class. We basically had to look at a map of England, find names of towns, and link them to surnames of people. It was a, a slightly odd exercise, but he got us to do it. And he said, whoever comes up with the most in 10 minutes will win a prize, and the prize he offered was, do you know those wooden rulers with like all the kings and queens of, uh, of England on that uh, were, were pretty trendy for, for the Geek Squad back in year eight? Um, well, that was the prize, and I won. So I, I was the one who got the most. And so I was like, I'm going to get my ruler. This is going to be well exciting. And then he says, well, I don't have the ruler with me, so I'll have to bring it in tomorrow. So, great, fine, tomorrow. I'm not going to make a big fuss of this. And so the next day, it's like history class, and I'm like, I'm just expecting him to like either come over and give it me or say, hey, Tom, here's your And we get to the end of class, and he's made no mention of it. So it's like, uh, sir, sir, you know that ruler? So, yeah, yeah, I don't have it with me today. Tomorrow, you can have it tomorrow. So uh, it kept, he kept dragging it out, and he kept stalling. And we got to the end of year eight, and he hadn't given me my ruler, despite me asking him an embarrassing number of times over the course of the year and I never got it still to this day there's a little bit of my heart that feels desperately sad about not having that ruler that I was promised something a bit like that was happening in the context that James is speaking to in verse 4 he says listen the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you have kept back by fraud cry out 
and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So these people owned fields. They needed help to, uh, to harvest their crops or to do all, all the other jobs in the field. And the way they'd get the help is they'd go down to like, the, the market square at dawn. There'd be people who, who needed work, would come out. They'd gather there. And let's say the person in the field needed 10 helpers. He'd pick 10 people who would come down to the market field. So, right, you, lot, you come to my field. You work for me today. And this is what I'll pay you. Make a promise what the wage would be. So then they'd all go down. They'd do their day's work. And then they'd get their money for it. That's how it was supposed to work. Well, what was happening is they were getting the people to work, but when, when it came time to give them their money, excuses were being made. So, oh, well, yeah, and now I promise you that, but just a bit of a cash flow situation at the moment, so you'll have to settle for this instead. And the people had no power to challenge it or to do anything about it. They'd done the work. They weren't getting paid. Or, or sometimes it's like, look, look, I can't pay you today, but if you keep coming and working for me all week, then, then I'll pay you at the end of the week. And there's all these different lines and excuses why they weren't getting what they were due. Now, the problem is, and this wasn't a problem for me with my ruler, because it was just a silly ruler, but for, for these people who'd been working in the field, they were relying on that money to have something to eat. They were relying on that to have something to feed their families. And so they're doing the work and they're not getting paid. And so they're being forced into poverty. They're being forced into hunger. They're being forced into suffering as a result of being defrauded. And the vision of these rich people as they approach their fields is me, what can I get? How can I get my bottom line as high as possible? But there was no vision for the flourishing of their workers. There was no, there was no vision for fairness, for kindness, for, for goodness, for, for the kingdom of God being extended in the hearts of these people. They were just seen as disposable and usable to get the bottom line up. And that's not God's heart. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 24, it says, you shall not withhold the wages of poor and needy labourers, whether other Israelites or aliens who reside in your land in one of your towns. You shall pay them daily before sunset because they're poor and their livelihoods depends on them. God wants us to have a different vision. God wants us to see something different for those who we are paying to do work for us. God wants us to have a vision of people Flourishing, a vision of goodness and fairness, not just profit, profit, profit. He's calling us to see things differently. And I think this idea might land differently for different people in this room. Now, for some people in this room, in your place of work, you will have direct control over employment policies and pay and conditions. You'll have the opportunity to decide what wages someone gets, what hours people have to work, what their benefits are. What's your vision for it? Is it just about driving the company's profits up? Or do you have a vision for doing well by the people who are working for you? Someone was telling me this morning, he's been in exactly this situation, that he was working in a job, he worked a few weeks, and they were meant to pay him, and they just didn't. And they kept making excuses, and they defrauded him, and eventually the company went bankrupt, and they never paid him what he was due. But the, the boss then went on a fancy holiday on everyone's wages that wasn't paid. It's awful, isn't it? But that's what you get when it's a vision just for, for profit and for me. Other people would tell stories of being forced onto zero-hours contracts or being forced into false self-employment where the employer doesn't want to give them the benefits, so they have to pretend it's self-employed, even though the expectations 
are that they're an employee. We can get a better vision for how we occupy these roles. Now, for, for, for others, we might not be in those positions. We're just starting out. Maybe you're a student, maybe you're early on in your career, but you have aspirations. You want to start a business or you want to uh, rise up the ranks in your business. Why not get a kingdom vision right now for how you could bring something of the goodness and the flourishing of the kingdom of God into the business world? Having that in your heart as you go, rather than just the, the technical skills to make money. There's a, a guy I knew a few years ago who ran a car dealership. He, he set it up himself. He was a Christian guy. And he said, I want to make this company different. So he didn't open on Sundays. Um, he said, I want to have Sunday worshipping with my church community. I also don't want to drive other people to be working all sorts of hours. We'll sacrifice a whole chunk of profits to have this healthy balance. I want to make sure my employees are paid fairly. I want to make sure that all their sickness benefits, maternity policies, everything we do, we want to be generous on it, not stingy on it. And he created this incredible business operating on kingdom principles. That's a vision, isn't it? for how we can make money and engage in the world. Very different than these people James is talking to. Maybe as you read it, though, maybe as you hear about workers not being paid, your mind goes a bit further afield. You think about global and systemic stuff. That's how it hits me. I read this and I think, I know that a whole bunch of my stuff and my wealth and my position is because other people haven't been treated fairly and haven't been paid fairly. And it's just indirect, and I sometimes don't know what to do about it. Because it's not like I've got a field and I'm inviting people to work for me. No, what's happening is there's a field thousands of miles away, and people are working in that field. And the conditions are harsh, and the chemicals being used are, are dangerous, and the hours are too long, and the pay is too low. Uh, and you look and say, that's awful. And then the fruit and the vegetables from those fields end up going into a supply chain, and they're passed from one warehouse to, to a ship, to another warehouse, to, to another company. And through a whole series of intermediaries, then end up in my shopping basket at uh, the supermarket. And I know, and the, I, I read this passage, and the pangs of it hit me deep. And sometimes I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to stop it from here. I can't just snap my fingers and say, we're going to change the way things work over there. And what I've come to realise over the years, is I, I can't do everything, but that doesn't mean I should do nothing. Just because I can't change the whole system doesn't mean I have to accept it for what it is. There are things I can do. I can educate myself. I can read up. I can start to understand a bit more about what's going on. I can make different choices about what products I buy and what companies uh, I, I buy from and who gets my custom and who doesn't. And I, I can play my part not to prop up this system, even if I can't change the system itself. So it's just a different vision for human flourishing over profit, profit, profit. I think that's the first thing we see here. Here's the second thing. Uh, a vision for how we save money. So it says in verse 3, your gold and silver have rusted. Their rust will be evidence against you. It will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure for the last day. So these people, they've been ripping off all their workers, and then they're just, all the profits from it, they don't even need it, they're just hoarding it. It's like, um, you know if you've seen The Hobbit, like Smaug the dragon, and he's got his mountain of gold, and he's just laying on it, but anyone dares come near it, and tries to threaten his gold. He's just fierce, and he'll breathe fire at them, 
That's the picture I get from these people. It's hoard, hoard, hoard. Get as much as I possibly can for me. Jesus told a story about a guy who, he had a good harvest, he got loads of crops, he filled his barn, and his impulse is, well, I need an even bigger barn, I need to get more. I'm not satisfied with having uh, stored up a bit for the future. I need to have more, and more, and more, and more. And that was his entire vision for how he used his money, just to get as much of it as he possibly could. And James is saying that's futile. Like, he says, look, your wealth is rotted. Your, your gold and silver is like rusted and corroded. What he's saying is, you think you're storing all this up like it will do you good and it won't last you. And that man in Jesus' story, he ended up dying and never making use of any of it. And then what good is his money to him? When my kids were dead little, they keep getting given money by people who, I'm, I'm not sure why, like what's a one-year-old going to do with some money? But they kept getting gifted money. So we had this money box and uh, we kept putting in all the money and all the gifts that people were given. Uh, and a little while later, we opened it and it was full and there was loads of it and it had all been stored up. And when we emptied it out, we found there was a, a bunch of coins, also some notes in there. And we were looking at it and we're like, some of this isn't even legal tender anymore. There's like notes that have gone out of circulation as they've been replaced by new ones. And they've just been sitting here. And in the end, they've been hoarded up, but they're no good. Well, there'll come a point. Jesus will return. Each one of us will, uh, will go on to the next life. And what good will our money be? It'll be out of circulation. It won't be there. Jesus compared those who store up treasures on earth with, with the treasures in heaven. That He said, that's what carries through to the next life. So what does it mean to have a, a vision for finance that's good in this area? Because the Bible is a bit nuanced. The Bible has positive things to say about saving, but there's a, a point at which that positive attitude to saving tips over into something that's not positive, something that's hoarding, something that's greedy, something where the heart is, is not trusting in God for the future. There's a fine line and a bit of nuance there. And especially in this context, because they were seeing so much poverty all around them, so many people suffering and with nothing to eat, and they've held on to this money. It's like, mine, 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 while people are out there starving. There's something not good about that. The Reverend Billy Graham said, we're not cisterns made for hoarding, but channels made for sharing. There's an opportunity for, <clears throat> there's an opportunity to get a vision for our money, not just to grab hold of it, but to do something with it. One thing they tell us uh, as a church or as a charity or as a business is it's good to have reserves. It's good to have some money set aside for, for whatever may happen. But there's a balance. You don't want to have too little or you're not prepared, but nor do you want to have too much because money's just sitting there that could be doing good, and it's not. The same's true for, for our own individual lives. It's, it's good to save. It's good to prepare for the future. But you don't want to save up so much that your money that could be doing good isn't. Final one then, a vision for how we spend our money, verse 5. It says, You've lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. 
That's a very vivid image, isn't it? Fattening your heart in a day of slaughter. I'm imagining like out on the streets, there's like gang warfare happening. There's fights, there's gunshots, maybe there's shells. And then there's someone just sitting out on their patio overlooking it. And they've got a big old steak and a nice glass of wine. And it's like they're just totally oblivious to what's going on beyond their fence. They're just about the pleasure and the indulgence. And they've missed everything that's surrounding them. Do we have a vision to use our cash as a force for good or just a force for the self? And for them, it was all about the self. Those words like you've lived in luxury and pleasure. It's all about buying things they didn't really need. I wonder if any of us ever do that. They were increasing their pleasure and comfort and indulgence. That was the sum total of the vision they had for their cash. The paycheck comes in and all they're thinking is, what can I get for me? How can I spend it all on myself? I bet we can all think of examples where we've strayed over this line, spending on things we just totally can't make any case for why we need. I'll give you an example from me, just to be a bit vulnerable, right? Not too long ago, I bought a book. Fine, okay? I I, I enjoy books, I enjoy reading. Thing is, right, I bought a book that I already owned because I owned it in hardback and it didn't look good on my shelf with all the paperbacks. The height was wrong. So I bought the paperback version of the same book I had in hardback. That's utter self-indulgence. There's absolutely no need for that. And I read something like this and I'm like, yeah, I need a better vision for my finance than making the the heights of my books all exactly the same. Now, the, the, the message of the Bible isn't never buy nice things. It's not trying to say that. In fact, in Deuteronomy 14, this is the context of a festival, uh, and God had called the people to celebrate a festival and to set aside some money, and he says to them, spend the money for whatever you wish, oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever you desire. He doesn't include paperback books on the list. I should, <laughs> I should take that on board. It's not saying never buy nice things. But if our entire vision for our cash is hoarding it for ourselves and spending it on ourselves, then maybe our vision is too small. Maybe we've been called to a vision for how we can use our cash as a force for good in the world. And that vision for using our cash as a force for good is ultimately a vision for the poor. Do we have our hearts switched on to the needs of the poor? Are we looking? Are we paying attention? Or are we like that person on the patio with the steak and the wine, completely missing the needs around us, oblivious to what's going on, oblivious to the fact, as I shared earlier, 10% of the world are living on £2 a day or less, oblivious to the fates of orphans and widows and the sick and the poor and the needy all around the world and in our own city. It's the mark of someone who's received the grace of God who's living in the truth of the gospel, to be aware and to care and to have compassion. There's an intimate link between the mercy we've received from the Lord and the mercy that we show to other people. The two go together. I've read from the book of James, and James's big message is that faith without works is dead. If we say we believe, but it doesn't transform how we act, we've completely missed it. We don't understand what's going on. You see, the vision that Jesus had was a vision to give. It wasn't just a vision for himself. It was a vision for good. It was a vision to lay himself down. He was in heaven. He had everything. And he could have held on to it, but he didn't. It says in 2 Corinthians 8, though he was rich, 
Yet for your sakes, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you may become rich. He laid down everything so that you could have it all. He laid down his very life for you and for me. And now as his followers, as his disciples, in our globally rich positioning, he'd call us to do the same. He'd call us to follow the same way he would. In fact, he told a story, uh, one of the most, um, I guess, well-known, but also quite in- intense, scary stories he ever told. And He says it's on the last day. The king will be seated on his throne, and all the nations will be brought to him. And he'll separate them, some on his left, some on his right, like a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. And he'd turn to those on one side, and he'd say, you guys are going to go to eternal life with the Father. And they said, well, why? He said, well, because you saw me hungry and you gave me food. You saw me thirsty and you gave me something to drink. You saw me naked and you clothed me. And you saw me in prison and you visited me. You did that for me. And they said, I don't think we did. I don't don't remember seeing you in those situations. I don't remember doing those things for you. And he said to them, whenever you did it for the least of one of these, you did it for me. Then he'll turn to those on the other side and say, for you guys, you won't go to eternal life. This will be eternal judgment for you because you didn't feed me. You didn't give me anything to drink. You didn't clothe me. You didn't visit me in prison. You didn't do any of that. And they'll say, we we never saw you in those situations. So whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. Now, he's not saying that what decides our, our fate is our works. It's not that our actions get us in or out of God's eternal life. That's grace. That's a gift from him. But those things are the evidence. Those things show a heart that's grasped it, that's got it, that that has this faith that works, that believes, that's received mercy, so gives mercy. True response to Jesus means you get his vision and you live it out. And you live it out amongst the poor and amongst the needy. This brings us on to give Big Sunday, just as an application of it. And just to, just to share with you, really, the origin of it, what it's all about. Like a, f- a few years ago as a church, we were reflecting on this idea of we want to have a vision that's bigger than just using finance for self. We didn't want to be about that. We wanted to have a vision of together using our finance for good. That's why we started this offering. I don't know how many years it was ago that we did the first of them. But, uh, but to give so that we can give it away. To give for those in need, those poor, to give to projects that we don't get the benefit of. So to put money into a hardship fund, to give money to Oasis and to the guys in Uganda and the guys in Iraq, to give and give out. Because we had this vision and we wanted this vision for money as a force for good to be what we did. And all of it flows from Jesus. It's not our vision, it's his vision. When he came to the earth, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. He didn't just come to maintain the status quo with a little bit of a sticking plaster. He came to give an entirely different vision of how the world could be. And then he invites us to be part of it. We get to share with him in living out this new vision of flourishing and kindness and care and compassion. So I'm going to pray in a minute for us. We're going to worship as well. And as we turn to him, as we meet with him in this time, my prayer for us is that we'll catch something of his heart, that we'll get a glimpse of his goodness, his mercy to us, and that as we see him, we'll become like him, we'll be transformed into his likeness, and we'll be drawn into the same kingdom vision. That's what it's about.